First Sunday of 2018. Yay. No, it's not. <laughs> I actually counted. So um, we are in uh, Matthew, in chapter 17 still, uh, starting with verse 14. And this passage shows us a major symptom that our sin nature has and, and, and can cause in our faith as we walk with Christ. And this symptom can make us very ineffective when we try to do what God's called us to do. So once you have gotten to Matthew chapter 17 and you find verse 14, I'm going to invite you to stand with me. And once I see everybody standing up, then I'll know that y'all are there. Hear what God's word has to say this morning. And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. And I brought him to your disciples and they could not heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. Let's pray. Father, I pray that these words would be encouraging this morning, that we would not be discouraged when we act in faith and things don't turn out the way that we think they should. Father, I pray that we would have faith the size of a mustard seed and that we would be able to do what you've commanded us to do with boldness. Father, help us to grow to be like Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. So, it would appear... Uh, now, now this passage, let me just lay the, the, the textual context. Um, this passage here in Matthew chapter 17, just like the one we looked at last week, is also in Luke chapter 9 and in Mark chapter 9. So all three of the gospel writers included this event in their account of Jesus' life. Um, based on the, the text in all three of those gospels, it would appear that this takes place after Jesus and Peter and James and John come down from the Mount of Transfiguration that we looked at last week. Um, scripture doesn't tell us that it was that short of a period of time. Um, and the other thing it doesn't tell us is where were the other nine? 
when Jesus took those three up the mountain, where were the other nine? We don't know. In fact, Scripture doesn't even tell us what mountain the transfiguration took place on. So we don't know what city they were in. We don't know why they were in the city, if they were in the city. We don't know what the nine were doing. However, if we read this account in Matthew 17 and Mark 9 and Luke 9, it becomes kind of clear that they were at least partially involved in the mission that Jesus had sent them out on before. Remember, Jesus sent the disciples out and he said, go into the towns and tell people, right? Share the gospel with them and if they don't listen, then you walk off and go to another house. Whatever they were doing, when Jesus and the other three come down from the mountain, there is a crowd waiting. And in uh, Mark's account and in Luke's account, I believe it's both of them, we hear that there are some scribes who are arguing with them in the crowd. Now, the scribes were the people who were responsible for copying God's Word. They would copy it from one scroll to another. They were the uh, first century equivalent of Xerox. That was their job. And as copyists, they knew God's Word very well. And it may have been a point of God's Word, one of the teachings that Jesus had given that they were arguing with the disciples about. We don't know. But in this crowd, there is a person. There's a person who has a very specific need. And i got to tell you, as a parent, uh, this need is one that I can understand how desperate he was to have this need taken care of. He falls on his knees before Jesus and he cries out for mercy. He is facing something that every parent fears. And that is a child who has an illness and we can't do anything about it. Um, and this was a severe illness. Now, I know this is a, 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 a twitchy subject. I know this is a subject that a lot of people don't like. Um, but, but I have to recognize the fact that there are probably a couple of different translations of the Scripture in y'all's hands. Okay? I would expect that we have copies of the King James, probably the New King James, uh, possibly the New American Standard, possibly the English Standard Version, uh, maybe even a uh, Christian Standard Bible out there in the group. And if you look at this passage, um, some of the translations read like this, uh, that, that the boy uh, in verse... Uh, 15, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and he suffers terribly. In other translations, like mine, it said he has seizures and he suffers. In other translations, particularly the older translations, it's rendered he is a lunatic and suffers severely. Why the difference in words? Well, the Greek word that is used there, uh, that's translated as either epileptic or lunatic or has seizures, 
the Greek word in the Greek text, in the Greek edition of the New Testament, is the word selenizomai. I don't make this stuff up because I can't. Okay? The two words, it's, it's two words, the, the two words put together literally translate as the words moon and struck. So in the Greek text, the father says he is moonstruck. And this comes from the understanding or the thought process that when the moon would go through its various phases, it would cause behavioral changes in people with mental issues. Okay, and, and as, as I've got a special ed teacher sitting here in the third row, and, and my mother has worked in a nursing home with dementia patients, this is not myth. There is something that happens to people when, and it's not just people with mental challenges, because <laughs> I've known enough elementary school teachers who've said, oh, great, it's a full moon. Brace for it. Because for whatever reason, people do act a little bit squirrely around certain times of the calendar when the moon is in certain phases. And it may be a gravitational thing, I don't know. Some of the translators have chosen the word seizures or epilepsy because of the way the illness is described in the other two Gospels. See, the translators have to work with the whole of Scripture, right? This is what we do when we read Scripture. We don't read it in a confined little box. It's not in a vacuum. We look at the other books and see what they have to say too. Mark says that he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever the spirit seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth, and he grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. Later on, Mark says, it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. Luke, who was a doctor, wrote, it convulses him so that he foams at the mouth, and it shatters him and will hardly leave him. These describe somebody who's suffering from a big seizure. Mark didn't use the word, or sorry, Matthew did not use the word seizure. He did not use the word epilepsy. He used the word moonstruck. Now, in the older translations, where they use the word lunatic, that's actually a better word. Because the word lunatic comes from the Latin root luna, which means what? Moon. <laughs> and again, it was that idea that the changing phases of the moon would bring on fits of mental instability. The point here being, Matthew does not tell us that this is a spiritual illness. If you read Matthew, let me read it again. Verse 15, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often into the water. There's no spiritual component there. Mark and Luke tell us that he has a spirit that makes him do these things. Jesus treats it as a spiritual illness. But I want you to pay attention and make a note here. 
Scripture is not telling us here or anywhere else that diseases like epilepsy or other uh, brain or mental disorders are all caused by evil spirits. They're not. They're not all caused by evil spirits. Sometimes they are, like in this case. Other times they are not. It is also not teaching us that somebody who is afflicted by one of these diseases, whether it be that person himself or his parents or his grandparents or his great-grandparents, sinned and caused this affliction. That's not in Scripture. Uh, In fact, Jesus tells us exactly the opposite. Remember when he encountered the man uh, that, that the disciples pointed at? And they said, who sinned and caused him to be born like this? Was it him or his parents? And what did Jesus say? Neither. He was born like this to demonstrate the glory of God. Okay? So when we encounter people, even people who are suffering under the the oppression of an evil spirit, that does not mean they did something to cause it. And if it's just an illness, if it is a physiological illness that does not have a spiritual root, it also does not mean that it came from some sin in their life. This is something we have a bad time with in the church, particularly a group of people I've talked about before, the the name it and claim it folks, the word of faith folks, the people who will tell you, well, you won't have this illness if you just believe hard enough. They'll point at this passage, particularly the last couple of verses, and say, see, Jesus says if you just have enough faith. No. No. In Paul's letter, when he says that he was afflicted with a thorn in the flesh and he prayed three times, I challenge you to tell me that Paul did not have enough faith. Paul. The guy who wrote most of the New Testament. God didn't tell him he didn't have enough faith. How dare we say that it's a faith-related issue when we encounter somebody who's sick? We can't do that. So back to the back to the text here. The the man says that I brought my <laughs> I brought my son to your disciples and they couldn't heal him. Now this would have been the nine who remained behind, or at least some some grouping of, of those nine. Uh, Mark says when they came down from the mountain, that Jesus and the other three, they found the other nine disciples in an argument with the scribes. Again, we don't know why. It may have had something to do with this affliction, but the disciples could not drive it out. They couldn't heal it. They couldn't fix it. And Jesus says something that is probably one of the harshest things that Jesus says. in answer to the disciples' inability to heal him. O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? 
faithless, twisted. Now, if I, I focus this accusation, basically, on just the disciples, which Jesus wasn't just talking about the disciples. He, he used the word generation, so he's talking about everybody who's alive at this point in time in his ministry. Um, how many times has Jesus talked about their lack of faith? So they're in the boat on the Sea of Galilee, and the storm comes up, and Jesus is asleep in the, in, in the boat, and, and they come and they wake him up, and they say, Lord, do something, because we're all going to die, and we at least want you to be awake to die with us. And he looks at him and he says, you have little faith. He speaks to the storm, and the waters are still. They go up on the mountain, and he's teaching the people, and there's a whole bunch of people up there. And the disciples look at Jesus and say, hey, the sun's starting to set. People been here for a long time. How about we send them away to get some food? Jesus says, no, you feed them. With what? All we got is a couple of barley loaves and a couple of fish. And Jesus says, you of little faith. He blesses the food. He proceeds to break it up and feed the 5,000. A mere couple of days later, they have 4,000 people. And the disciples say, hey, send everybody away so they can get something to eat. And, and Jesus does the first century, first century equivalent of tapping the microphone. Is this thing on? Weren't you paying attention? I took care of it two days ago. And so he feeds the 4,000. Jesus is constantly talking about the lack of faith that this generation has. And they were walking around with Jesus. They were watching the miracles with Jesus. This is only two weeks at the top. Two weeks after the Caesarea Philippi Confession, where Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. The disciples are all there. They've seen Him raise people from the dead. They've seen Him restore the ability to walk to the lame. They've seen Him cleanse leprosy with a touch. They've seen Him heal blindness. They've seen all of this stuff. And oh, by the way, if that statement there, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you, isn't harsh enough, then he basically says, how much more foolishness do I have to put up with? I got to tell you, Jesus is fully man, and Jesus is fully God. And those questions right there are fully God. How much longer do I have to bear your lack of faith? Sounds like Moses. You remember all the times Moses, after, after he brings the people out of Egypt, they're not even out of Egypt for a full day before they start grumbling and complaining? Right? They get to the edge of the Red Sea. Thanks, Moses. Appreciate you bringing us out here to die. Pharaoh and his troops are going to come kill us. 
What does Moses do? He prays, God, do I have to? <laughs> really? <laughs> can, we, can we just let him die? They'll quit complaining then. And God parts the Red Sea. They get across the Red Sea and they start traveling to Mount Sinai just, just a couple of weeks, right? They start traveling. They start traveling. Hey, Moses, what are we going to eat? We're starving out here. Thanks for bringing us out here to the desert to starve to death. So what does Moses do? He prays, God, please, how much longer do I have to deal with them? And then there's times where God comes to Moses and says, I'm done. I'm done with these people. And Moses says, but God, you promised. He's not reminding God of anything. He's not making God change his mind. But this shows the mind of God. How much longer? And it comes to a, a, a culmination at Mount Sinai after Moses comes down for a meeting with God and he's carrying the tablets in his hands. And when he gets to the bottom of the mountain... What are the people doing? They're worshiping the golden calf. That's when Moses broke all ten commandments at one time. Throw them on the ground. How much longer? He went back up the mountain and he asked God, how, how much longer do I have to keep dealing with these people? How much longer do you have to keep dealing with these people? The fact of the matter is, God's people excel at a lack of faith. I really wish that weren't the case. Because I'm part of that. And you're part of that. I know you all have heard me say that the uh, biblical illiteracy is at an all-time high right now within the church. The vast majority of people within the church do not know God's Word. And I'm not talking about being able to quote it. I'm not talking about being able to recite it. I am talking about not functionally knowing what God's Word says. There are people out there who will tell you that one of the Proverbs is, waste not, want not. Pretty sure it wasn't Solomon who wrote that. I think it was a guy who came much later, by the name of Ben. <laughs> people don't know. God helps those who help themselves. You ever heard a Christian quote that? I have. I, I, I'd really like you to show me that in Scripture. I've never found it. Or how about this one? God will never give you more than you can handle. It's not how mine reads. God repeatedly gives us more than we can handle to cause us to have faith in Him. But we don't know. 
we don't know what it says. We only read it on Sunday. Maybe. Maybe. If the preacher makes us get it out. If we can't just get away with looking at the screen and reading it off the screen. Because it's a whole lot easier to to hear the preacher tell us what the Word says. Right? I don't have to work as hard. Because after all, I'm going to come to church, the preacher's going to tell me what i got to believe, right? You heard that part about me making mistakes, right? I do that a lot. Do you really want to trust me with your faith? I hope not. The only way we know what the Word says is if we read it. So if we don't know what the Word of God says, then how can we believe what the Word of God says? We, we have something the disciples didn't have. Okay, They did not have the completed canon of Scripture. They did not have the 66 books. In fact, the account that Mark and Matthew and Luke is recording right here is before the entirety of the New Testament was written. They had the Old Testament, which was collected on scrolls, and kept in the temple and in the synagogues, and, and, and maybe sometimes you wouldn't even have all of them because they didn't just have Xerox. They couldn't just go stick it on the copying machine and run off a copy. Mr. Gutenberg hadn't come around yet, so they didn't have the printing press. So those scribes had to hand copy every edition of those scrolls, and the paper wasn't, Resilient like paper we have today, it was cloth and and papyrus and, and 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 other natural fibers that would break down the more they were used. So when you roll the scroll up to take care of it, and then you unroll it, and then you roll it back up, and you unroll it, and you roll it back up, what happens? The edges start to break and crumple and words fall off, literally. Right? They didn't have that. But these are the guys that were walking around with Jesus. And their faith was lacking. If we don't read God's Word, and we don't have Jesus walking around with us, What's our faith going to look like? Hmm. So if we look back at the text, this time over in Mark chapter 9, uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 22, the Father describes the afflict- affliction to Jesus that the Spirit seizes His Son And then later on he says that the disciples couldn't remove it. And then he says something 
to Jesus. Let me read. This is Mark chapter 9, starting in verse 21. Jesus asked the Father, How long has this been happening to him? And the Father said, From childhood. Verse 22, It's often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Verse 23, Jesus said to him, If you can... The guy's only hope was Jesus. And he didn't have a lot of hope in Jesus. If you can. All things are possible for one who believes. It's almost like Jesus is asking him, why come for help if you don't think I can do it? Why pray to me for help if you don't think I'm going to do it? Fast forward 2,000 years. And let me put that question before you. Why bother praying if you really don't think Jesus is going to do it? How many times do we pray and then pray a caveat to give God an out? How many times do we pray, God, please help me with such and such and so on and so forth, if it's your will? Let let me rephrase that. God, please, if you can, help me out. How does Jesus respond? If I can? What's the point in asking me if you don't think I have the ability to do it? What's the point in asking me for that if you don't think it's within my power to do it? Now, I'm not saying we need to be light with understanding that God's only going to do what His will is. But let me ask you something. If you are praying for something and it's not God's will, why are you praying for it? There's an easy answer. Because we don't have a clue what God's will is. Now there's part of God's will that we cannot know. Right? And I'm okay with that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> there, there are things that God doesn't tell me, and that's all right. Okay? When I was a kid, and, and my parents will tell you, and, and tell you, and tell you, and tell you, when I was a kid, I was very inquisitive. My favorite question was, why? 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 Give me information. Give me information. Now, fast forward to the point where my parents are no longer the ones who have to deal with this, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump back two rows and over a couple of seats. 
And I will, you ask Steph what my biggest, biggest addiction is in the internet age. It's information. I am an information consumer. I've got to have information. Man, I am on the internet probably 18 hours a day because I sleep for about six. When I'm at work, I have the news pulled up. I have uh, military news pulled up. I have government news pulled up. I have, I'm an information consumer. But you know, when it comes down to it, I really don't need to know what God's will is in every particular case. Because there are things that, that are beyond me. Sadly, if I don't read this, then even the part of His will that is within my grasp, I'm not going to know it. And if I don't know what God's will is, because I don't know God personally by reading His Word, I don't know His Word, I don't know what His Word tells me, then how am I going to pray for stuff that is His will? I can't. So as we... Here's how it should work, right? There is no time on this. There, as I said this morning in Sunday school, Scripture does not say thou shalt spend an hour and a half a day in Scripture. That's, that's not the 11th commandment. There is no place in the Bible where we are told that we need to spend a certain amount of time in God's Word. I wish we did, it would be a whole lot easier. Because then I'd be able to point to you guys and say, if you're not doing that, you're being disobedient. It's not there. But as we grow in our walk with Christ, we should seek to spend more time in the Word. As we spend more time in the Word, we should be more focused and more attuned on what it means to be in line with God's will. And then our prayers will line up with God's will. But what happens, instead of what's supposed to happen, what does happen is... We don't know God's Word. We don't read God's Word. We don't study God's Word. We don't learn about God. We don't learn His will. And when we do bother to pray, if it's more than just praying a blessing over our food, right? Or when we're called on to pray in a group setting, when we pray, our prayers move away from His will. Because I'm not focused on His will. I'm not focused on His Word. I'm drifting away from it. And so what do my prayers start to look like? They start to look a lot less like, God, give me the boldness to go out and share the gospel with my next door neighbor. And they look a lot more like, God, please make me successful at work so I can afford to pay off my mortgage and buy that new boat. Now let me ask you, is there anything wrong with owning a boat? Not necessarily if you're the kind of person that likes to own a boat. I am not. Is there anything wrong with paying off your mortgage early? No. But those may not be God's will for your life right now. But see, I've moved far enough away from His Word, I don't know. 
And it's really easy for me to believe those people who tell me that God wants me to be healthy and rich. I don't think He wants me to be healthy and rich. Because if it was His will, I would be healthy and rich. I would not be overweight and armpit deep in debt. So as we start to pray more carnally, more build upon our will than on God's, what happens to the answers to those prayers? Yeah. See, if I'm, if I'm, if I'm founded on God's Word, if, if my foundation is God's Word, and I'm praying for people's salvation, and I'm praying for His glory, and, and I'm praying, much more likely I'm going to see those things come to pass. Right? It's not to say He doesn't want things for me too. Because we're told every good and perfect gift is from above, right? Right? But as I, as I move away from His Word and I start moving over here and maybe I'm praying for people to not be sick, that's, that's not selfish. Maybe. I don't want my child to suffer because I don't want to have to pay the medical bills. Right? I'm being honest. I don't want my, my, my income to go down because I don't want to lose my house. I want to pay the debts that I have, but that's because I don't want to lose what I have, right? As, as I start to move further and further away, then what are the answers going to be to my prayers more often than not? They're going to be no. And you know, every time God says no to one of my prayers, because of my sinful human heart, it's a whole lot easier for me to take that next, well, you know, I was just praying for so-and-so to get healed from this cancer that they have, and, and they died. And, and I don't know if I really want to read God's Word right now, because I'm a little bit upset. They, they really suffered, and that was hard. And, and, and so I'm going to take a week off from reading God's Word. Or two. Or a month. And you know, I, I would keep coming to church, but it's just, it's so hard for me to deal with all those sanctimonious and self-righteous people. And I keep praying and nothing's happening and I keep hearing no and, and I'm asking God to deliver my friends and family and, 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 and I'm just, I keep, how far am I from God's word? It's really easy. This is what our sin nature does to us. Because our sin nature wants God to do what we want God to do. And what faith is all about is understanding that God is going to do what God wants to do, and we need to want what God wants. Not what I want. And so the, the Father, when, when Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for he who believes, the Father's response, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, the Father of the child cried out, I believe, help my unbelief. 
I have this much faith. I have this much unfaith. Help my unfaith go smaller. See, even when I'm standing over here and I'm armpit deep in this instead of armpit deep in my own will, and I'm reading God's Word and I'm studying God's Word, I'm still human, and as soon as I set it down and I start living in this world that I'm in, my unbelief is like this and my faith is like this. And that Father's statement, I believe, help my unbelief, is the cry that every Christian ought to start their day with. I believe, help me with my unbelief. If I keep going in Mark's account, when Jesus saw the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying and convulsing terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. When he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Back over to Matthew, chapter 17, verse 18. Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why couldn't we cast it out? And he said to them, Because of your little faith. Why did God answer my prayer with a no? Because of your little faith. If you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. He's not talking about having faith in their own success, having faith in the ability of them to do what Jesus had commanded them to do. He's not telling them to have more confidence. He's reminding them of where their faith needs to be placed. This is the key to our faith. This is, this is what I've been getting to all morning long when I talk about how far we stray from being in God's Word and how that impacts our faith. Who was trying to cast it out? Let me read this verse to you again. Verse 19, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? Because you had faith in you casting it out. Your faith was little. Not your confidence in your abilities. Your faith was little. Faith in what? Faith in the power of God to do it. Faith in the ability of God to do it. Let me go back to the Father's question. If you can, will you help us? Why bother trying if you don't think I can do it? Who are we supposed to have faith in? The church? 
Please don't have faith in the church. We'll let you down. Our faith is to be in God, period. Their faith is little because it was faith in their ability to do what Jesus had commanded them to do. The object of their faith was Jesus' command, was the power that Jesus granted them, the authority that Jesus granted them. That was the object of their faith. Where did their faith need to be? God. This is the key to our faith. The reason we need to have our faith grounded and founded and built upon the Word of God. I don't trust my prayers. Are prayers powerful? No. Prayers are not powerful. The one we pray to is powerful. I believe there's power in prayer. I don't. I believe there's power in the one I'm praying to. My faith is not in my prayers. My faith is in God to answer those prayers. My faith is in God to do His will. I believe. Help my unbelief. Faith like a grain of mustard seed. If the disciples had put their trust in God to do the work, to cast that demon out, they might have. I don't think they would have because this lesson needed to be taught to them and it needed to be taught to us. Our faith needs to be in God's work and not our understanding, not our strength, not our ways. His thoughts, His ways, His power, way beyond anything we can understand. There are but two ordinances that he gave to the church. And if you go talk to a Presbyterian or you go talk to an Anglican or or, uh, um, Episcopalian or a Lutheran, um, they're not going to call them ordinances. They call them sacraments. Sacraments, means of grace. I like that word sacrament. Now, this is one of those things that I have a hard time understanding. Because of my little faith. The reason I like the word sacrament is because of the way that that word pictures an imparting of grace to God's people. Everybody look at the kids. I'll wait. That word sacrament means imparting of grace. Now, as, as Baptists, we, we, we are really good at moving away from anything that sounds like Roman Catholicism. Uh, we will throw the baby out with the bathwater if the baby has been dipped <laughs> as a Catholic. We, we're, we, are, we, we are so knee-jerk in our reactions. We like that word ordinance because Jesus told us to do this. It's a rule. It's a command. When we start talking about means of grace, and we start 
feeling a little bit wishy-washy, like maybe we're saying that somehow by participating in a little piece of cracker, we are somehow being extra saved in that little piece of cracker or in that little bit of juice or that there's something special that happens that, that we don't quite understand. And of course, then there's that whole charismatic controversy that started up in the 60s and 70s and we start talking about the Holy Spirit doing things that we don't understand. Then we get really twitchy because I don't like the idea of the Holy Spirit making us talk in funny languages. That's the Baptist point of view. All right? I'm a little bit different. If God wants me to start speaking Swahili, then all He needs to provide is somebody out here who understands Swahili. Piece of cake. And that would definitely be a miraculous gift. Because I can barely speak English. (laughs) But my point here is, when we participate in this meal by faith, there is grace that is imparted to us. It's not saving grace. I'm not saved by eating the, 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 the wafer here or, or drinking from the, the cup. I'm not saved by that. I'm, I'm saved by Jesus, period. I wasn't saved when I was baptized. That's, that's not what happens. That's not how this works. Saving grace is not imparted. Sanctifying grace, that process by which we grow to be more like Christ, I think is what happens here. But we have to participate in faith. So so when I hand out the elements this morning, I believe, help my unbelief. You know, the... During the Reformation, there was a big, big, big issue between um, Martin Luther and and even Calvin and and Zwingli. Calvin and Zwingli were the two big ones, um, and there was this 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 problem with the Lord's Supper and how this imparting of grace comes to us. And I gotta tell you, I, I don't I don't know. Martin Luther Martin Luther is, is famous, not Martin Luther King. That's the holiday comes later. Martin Luther is famous for, for his 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 vocal Jesus said, this is my body. And so the the Roman Catholic doctrine is that when the priest prays over and blesses the the elements, the host, as they're called, they, they, in essence, become the body and blood of Christ. I don't believe that. Zwingli and Calvin both taught that spiritually Jesus is present in the meal. Not that we are actually eating bits of Jesus, because yuck, okay? But that spiritually He is here with us. We're not just doing this in memory of His meal with the disciples. 
We're doing this. When we do this in faith, we are doing this, and He's here. Remember what He told the disciples where two or three gathered where? In my name. Uh, something about that phrase, in my name. You know, Jesus' name, number one, was not Jesus. Um, that's anglicized Latin translated from Hebrew. <laughs> His name would have been Joshua or Yeshua, okay? Does that mean that we shouldn't call him Jesus anymore? No, I don't think so. When he says, in my name, he's not talking about the name. He's talking about his authority. So where two or three are gathered in his authority, what does he give us authority to do? Make disciples. Teach one another. Discipline one another. Love one another. Those are things that we do in his authority, right? So as long as we're here to do that in His name and His authority, He's here with us. No less so than when we partake of these elements. There is nothing magical about a Manschwitz cracker that was bought at Winn-Dixie and has been hanging out in my freezer in a Ziploc bag. Might be something stale about it, but there's nothing magical about it. There is equally nothing magical about a one-ounce cup of pasteurized Welch's grape juice that's been sitting on a shelf in my pantry. Nothing. But when we take these elements by faith, there is something spiritual that happens where we are participating with the church from the first century and even further back all the way up till now and all the way up till Jesus comes back. And He's here. He's with us. So we can pray, I believe. Help my unbelief. I'm going to ask you all now to pray I'm going to give everybody a couple of minutes, as we normally do. Uh, Paul warned the Corinthian church not to do this in an unworthy manner, not to do this in a fashion that was gluttonous or self-centered or self-focused, because that's why some among them had passed away. Other places in Scripture we are told that if we're bringing our gift to the altar, which I believe this time is a gift. We're bringing our gift to the altar and we're reminded in our mind of something that our brother has against us that we need to lay our gift down and go seek forgiveness and reconciliation. I think that's part of the unworthy fashion. If there is unconfessed sin in your life, if there is something that has come between you and God in your life, I want you to take the next couple of minutes silently to pray, to, to deal with that between you and God. And then after I bless the elements, I'm going to come around and hand them out. And if you would just hold both pieces until I get everybody served, we will eat and drink together. But if there is a reason you don't feel you can participate in a clear conscience, because of unforgiveness, because of unconfessed sin, whatever it is, if you can't deal with it right now, that's okay. 
because there's no judgment here either. I know each one of us is at our own place in our Christian walk. Each one of us spiritually is in a different location, different from each other and even different from where we were yesterday. Okay? So let's take a couple of minutes to pray, and then I will bless the elements and hand them out.